And that was one of those nights where, you know, it was like riding a, a, a bucking Bronco for a week and a half. Ultimately, the diagnosis that he received um, was he was bipolar. Hello, this is Al from The Depression Files, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out and a huge thank you to two new patrons, Lorraine Montez and Jeff Dunlap. Thank you so much for becoming patrons to the show. I really appreciate the support. You too could support the show for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash the depression files. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. A few other ways to support the show would be to follow and subscribe the show and to take a minute to leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. This would be a great way to support the show and help others find the show. I want to thank you all very much for the support and for listening to The Depression Files. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited today on the line we have Charlie Cratch. Charlie is the founder and CEO of Infinite Campus. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Al. Charlie, so first I have to tell you, and, and I think you're aware of this, but I work in St. Paul Public Schools, so your product, Infinite Campus, is like a daily household name of mine, and I'm on it all the time as a St. Paul Public School administrator. Oh, I, I appreciate that. We have uh, millions of users across the country. I uh, founded the company 30 years ago. We have uh, uh, 8 million students online in 45 states across the country. And fun fact for you, there are more school buildings in North America using Infinite Campus than there are McDonald's restaurants. So we've got a pretty good, oh pretty good footprint out there. Yeah, yeah. That, that is an incredible statistic. Wow. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And for those who don't know, I mean, I would just describe it as like it—it it, it is a, and you, you correct me because uh, I'm sure I'm only going to skim the top of it probably, but a database with all of our students um, from the school district and from our school inside of it. It has all of their personal information. We contain all of the behavioral data and household information, and so much more, our grades, our transcripts, everything is kind of in this system of infinite campus. Yeah, it is the, it's what's technically referred to as a student information system, is the central repository of student data for, for school districts. And uh, everything from enrolling students to building schedules, taking attendance, uh, managing grades, assessment, behavior, uh, health information, and so on. And also one of the areas that uh, we've gotten into is using artificial intelligence uh, to be able to really predict uh, student outcomes. And that's another real exciting thing that we're doing. 
And that uh, we call it the ABCD side of it. We use attendance, behavior, curriculum information, and information about the student's family life. All of that for the 30 years that we've been tracking this data, we can really make you know just insanely accurate predictions about where kids are going. And one of the nice things about being able to predict the future is you can also start to make recommendations of how you can change that future for the better. And that's a real exciting thing that we're into right now. Oh my that's God. all using artificial intelligence. Yep. Yeah, that sounds phenomenal as an educator. And what would you say... I'm really curious now, uh, what kind of age are you looking at before you would have a pretty solid idea of that child's outcome? You know, it's, I hate to say it, but basically third grade. Yeah. That doesn't (laughs) surprise me. Yeah. By third grade, you know where these kids are going to end up. And one of the biggest uh, predictors is their reading level. For sure. And if kids can't read by third grade, forget about it. You yeah. know, it, you're, you're playing catch up from them on. And uh, that's something that we really stress in, in the, you know, the value of early childhood learning, uh, reading at those early levels. Everything is built on top of that. And we can see it in data. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I have said that for a long time. It's what a lot of the most of the research shows. By grade three, we need our kids reading at grade three level or they're going to be behind their entire educational career. And, you know, they start getting into not learning how to read, but reading to learn and using their reading skills for gaining the content. And once you're past third grade, yeah, it's it's rough to get them caught up. So let's get into this a bit. So you have what really caught my eye is, you created, um, not all that long ago, a competition because you do a lot of philanthropic, ooh, I almost got that right, philanthropic uh, work through your organization, and you have created a competition with a million-dollar prize in order to essentially kind of create a system that coordinates mental health. Am I kind of getting that right? Yeah, you know, that's the idea. And really where this came from was uh, our, our family's behavioral health journey started about 10 years ago. Prior to that, um, this issue was not on my radar. Not gotcha. at all. You know, I'm a tech nerd. You know, you're behind your computer. You're pounding away. I'm an entrepreneur. You're working on your business. I really wasn't involved with a lot of these social issues and definitely wasn't doing much philanthropical work. Um, but 10 years ago, uh, my oldest son, he was about 16 at the time, he came home from school and um, he was sitting in our living room watching TV and uh, he said there was something wrong with his car. He had left it at school. And, you know, I started asking him questions, but something was a little off. And then he started talking about the CNN. He was watching TV and they were talking to him. And it was a very weird experience. And uh, my wife and I, you know, we looked at each other and said, okay, this isn't right. Now, not having worked with mental health issues in the past, we thought this has got to be drugs, right? Right, you know, right. He, he's on something. Did he so, literally, did he just say to you, hey, they're quiet down, dad. They're talking to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. essentially. Yeah, you know, oh, it was, you know, it, and it was very strange and he was, and then the, when he's talking about his car, somebody had done something to it. You know, there was this paranoia and it was just, 
it wasn't like him. You know, had a day he, before, had he walked home and was it far? And was that whole deal? No, somebody, strange? somebody gave him a ride. Okay. Uh, somebody gave him a ride home. One of his friends gave him a ride home or something. Right, right. So what I did was I asked my wife, okay, you wait here. I'm going to go check on the car. So I went, uh, drove to the school and, uh, the car was sitting, nothing wrong with it. Just hmm, started right weird. up. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like, <sighs> so I went back home and we were like, okay, we got to get him to the hospital. <laughs> you know, some something's way off here we 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 brought him to the er and like you said in in your mind you are thinking this is some kind of gotta be drugs and did he have a past of smoking marijuana or doing any kind of drugs that you were aware of not that we were aware of right no but that was the first uh, thing like this must be drugs because it was just so different yeah 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 so we take him to the er and they do you know a full uh uh physical blood panel the works and uh, it came back negative and uh, nothing there. Everything seems fine. And the doctor was going to discharge him. You know, it's like, uh, it doesn't seem to be anything wrong. And, and without because, any kind of explanation, he was just going to say, no. he's fine. He's out of here. Yeah, it was actually, yeah, it was a female doctor. And, and she, uh, and she, and of course, she didn't know him before. So, yeah, right. you know, teenagers, they're a little off. This is, yeah, and this is an ER physician. She's not a mental health professional or anything else. Right. Were you and, worried at um, the time? Like, oh my goodness, this is not normal. And now you're just letting him go? Well, yeah, you know, we were relieved when they did the 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 drug panel and all that, or right. the drug screening and, and the blood panels. It's like, everything seems normal. It's like, huh, all right. But then uh, because he was 16, he had to sign a release form. Okay. You know, so it's just a basic sign here. You can leave. Yeah. And he started going through the form and editing it. And the doctor (laughs) asked him, why are you doing this? And then he started talking in the, in the paranoid kind of delusions and started explaining why. And that's uh, when she, the doctor pulled us aside and said, I don't know what's going on here, but, uh, He's going to need some more some mental health screening. And that's when I learned what a 72 hour hold is. Okay. Yeah. And what uh, can you share with us some of his paranoid thoughts? Do you recall what those were at the time that the doctor heard? It was just generally, you know, it was again, it was people who were out to get him. Right. And, you know, the, the folks who were behind this release, what they were trying to find out about him, the things he didn't agree with, you know, it was just odd. Yeah. And, and that's what she said. All right, we need to find him a, uh, a residential facility, a bed. And uh-huh. again, we had no experience in the mental health system. We figured, yeah, just bring him upstairs, right? You know, this is a hospital, you know, this is, you have beds. Yeah, like, right. No, no, no. Um, we don't have uh, mental health facilities here. We don't, especially youth mental health. And, you know, so our thought is, okay, we're going to end up going maybe, you know, downtown or something. Yeah. You know, this is the Twin Cities. And that's when we really started to learn how bad the system is, because um, this is like, I don't know, it's about eight or eight o'clock at night by this point. And um, we're in a small room in the ER, locked, and uh, I'm outside talking to the nurse, and she's on the phone calling. And I said, well, what's going on? I'm trying to find a bed. And it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, there are no beds available uh, in the Twin Cities, so I'm calling Sioux Falls. I also have calls into Chicago. And, and I just wow. stared at her and said, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, no, this is pretty normal. And it's just like, whoa. You know, yeah. you just. And then so we wound up spending 
the entire night in this small room in the ER. And, she, and then finally the, the morning nurse came on and said, um, came on duty. This is, you know, maybe about 5 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning and said, okay, um, there might be a VED opening up in St. Cloud. So you're, you know, as soon as somebody's discharged up there, we can put your son in an ambulance, send him to St. Cloud, and he can have that bed. And by this, I'm totally spent. It's like, you got to be, what? Right. So boom, it happens, gets in an ambulance, takes off. Um, I send my wife home. We've got a younger son at home. She's got to be there with him. I end up going up to St. Cloud with my son and go through the entire intake process and whatnot. And then for the next week, he spent that um, in the youth mental health facility up in St. Cloud. And I got a hotel room up there. And so from uh, about eight in the morning till about six at night, they, they let me stay in the uh, youth mental health ward with him. Okay. And that was that was an amazing eye opener for me that I got to talk to the doctors, the nurses. I got to talk to other kids in the ward. It was like, this is a whole world I had no idea that existed. Right, right. And it was, you know, pretty interesting going through that and in, in learning about my son and all the medications um, and things that they were uh, giving him, the antipsychotic, you know, the atypical antipsychotic drugs and, and um, you know, going through that whole experience. And, and by the end of the week, and, and I laughed, they didn't discharge him. They actually discharged me and let me take, him with me. I think they were tired of of all my questions. That's funny. Um, But that was, that was the start of the journey. And it, you know, that, and then when he was discharged, we had, you know, I started talking to uh, a number of hospital professionals that I knew and others and, you know, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, you know, that depends, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And so, you know, and, and, and what dawned on me, two things hit me uh, square in the eyes at that point. One was, um, how in the world do people who don't have the resources that we had deal with this? Um, my wife is a stay-at-home mother, so she could go home and take care of our other son. Um, I had connections, money, and everything. I was able to navigate through the system, and it was incredibly difficult. I can't imagine like a single mother with other kids at home working two jobs, probably right. her own mental health conditions. Yeah. How do you do this? Well, the answer is they don't. Right. You know, yeah. it, it just fails. And then the final thing was how, you know, you know, selecting medications, finding counselors and psychiatrists. I mean, it was just, it, it's crazy trying to work through all this complexity. I was used to the physical health system where you go to the hospital. It's like, all right, uh, yeah, you have a broken leg. We're going to set it. We're going to give you this. You're going to have physical therapy afterwards. Here, you know, boom, yeah. boom, boom, boom. There's a game plan. Exactly. None We're going to send you to an orthopedic specialist, you know, everything. Yeah, and it yeah. just goes. Right. The, 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 the behavioral health, not like that. Not at all. So um, I've got to ask you a couple questions here. So one, did you hop into the ambulance with him or did you just follow and, and arrive a little bit later? Well, first of all, they don't let you ride in the ambulance. Okay. okay. And then second of all, they don't let you follow the ambulance. They made that very clear. Okay. And I said, well, you know, which hospital, you know, and right. is, you know, whatever the hospital is up there. And I said, all right, I'll be there. And I got there probably about 
10 to 15 minutes after him. So I made pretty good time. And and, and what's going through your mind as you're driving there? Like, you, you must be so strange, right? Your first time oh, experiencing just, something like this with uh, your son. You're just numb. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like any other situation. I've had a lot of uh, physical injuries, you know, broken, this, that, and the other thing. And you just, you go into kind of, you know, you know, just reaction mode. You're just yeah. dealing with everything one by one. Right. And I would say it was really, um, it was probably about three days in at the hospital till everything just started hitting me. I was, right. I was, you know, sitting in the hotel room. It was about eight o'clock in the hospital. I'm just like, what if this is his condition that, that, you know, basically, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but right. this, you know, something broke. He's going to be on this other planet for the rest of his life. Right. You know, right. it's like, uh, a lot can go on mean? in your mind, right? So yeah. um, tell us about like the intake process. And like you said, <laughs> all of a sudden he's on drugs because you went from being in the Twin Cities where all of a sudden they recognize, wait a minute, he seems really paranoid. Something's going on. And then all of a sudden you're doing an intake at an inpatient facility. And how does what's that like? And how do they talk about meds with you and your son? Yeah, well, the and I have to say that the people that we were in contact with start to finish were fantastic. You know, they were working with what they had. Um, you know, when we got to St. Cloud, uh, they weren't sure what the, what the situation was. There was a lot of theories, but you know, the, the, the doctors there were pretty straightforward saying, you know, we may not have a diagnosis for months, if not years, wow. which is another thing that, that blew my mind. But what they did was it was interesting the, the first go round, they gave him a pretty heavy dose of Seroquel, which is a, um, an atypical antipsychotic. And that, um, on one hand, worked. It kind of brought him back. You know, I always say back into focus, you know? Right. But on the other hand, the side effect for him was it made him very irritated and kind of violent. Okay. And that started the second chapter for us because when he went home with us you know he was on Seroquel and even at that time being 16 pretty big guy it was the whole new chapter of just managing the physical side of this of his outbursts and everything else which was a new thing and so you know I wound up calling around and whatnot we wound up getting into a program uh, down at the University of Minnesota, there was what they called a first episode program. And that was the first time I felt we were dealing with uh, uh, doctors that kind of understood what was going on. Okay. And when we did the intake down there, and that was another thing, they didn't have any open space. We had to wait, I think it was a week and a half till they could get in that program. And and before and that, that are, was, are you getting a psychiatrist and stuff to help you manage the Seroquel or any other meds he might have been on? Um, yeah, you know, not really. You yeah, know? So you was, left, you left St. Cloud. He's on Seroquel. Was he on all other antidepressants yeah, we had, or other um, meds? No, that was it at the time. We okay. had a doctor, uh, lined up, uh, through Alina yeah. and she wound up, she's still his psychiatrist Okay. to this day. Right. Um, but really when we got into that first episode program at the U, uh, we did an intake and the, the doctor there interviewed him. And the, the best thing I heard in my life was she said, we can get you into the program. And the first thing we're going to do is get you off that Seroquel nice. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and switch the meds to, um, 
uh, I don't even remember what it was, but that all of a sudden, okay, that was much better. And that was another part of this journey that we learned is, you know, the medications, it's, it's not like in physical health where they kind of know how it's going to affect you. Right. The, uh, the, the meds that you get in the mental health world, it's really a crapshoot how it's going to affect an individual. So it's all trial and error. Yeah. And it changes over time and all that. But we got into the program there and it was interesting. He, uh, it was, a uh, a, a, um, a residential, a residential program. And that was one of those nights where, you know, it was like riding a, a, a bucking Bronco for a week and a half. And when he got into that program and stayed overnight that night, I went home, my wife and I just finally relaxed. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right, now what are we going to do? You right, know? And then you just right. start, you plan the next phase. And ultimately the diagnosis that he received um, was he was bipolar. Okay. Um, although his psychiatrist, um, was, she's still even to this day, not sure if that's exactly what it is, but he does go through mildly depressive and then also the manic phases. So it's, it's, it's kind of a form of, um, bipolar, but then also through all of this, we learned that in fact, he had been, uh, doing a fair amount of marijuana in school Okay. and there really weren't you know, outward signs of that. Although, you know, as a parent, I think it's easy to miss a lot of things that you're not looking for. Right. You know, if you don't know what to look for, but that was, there was some theory and that was in that first episode program. That was a big theory of theirs that a lot of these psychosis can be caused by um, early adolescent use of, of cannabis. But it, 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 you know, it, it, that was based on a study that was done in England. And, you know, it's just it's like, you know, it was a theory. It wasn't a diagnosis or anything. But, right. you know, there we were. And uh, so we went through that program. And interestingly, what we found over the last 10 years is about every three to four years, he goes through the depressive manic cycle. And it's only in the manic cycle. He's been hospitalized three times since then. Okay. It, it's all been for that manic cycle where things just spin out of control. And usually that's coupled with him not taking his medication. Right. Which is a story you hear over and over again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Can can you describe what it's like when he's in a mania? Um, a lot of uh, uh, risk-taking behavior. Um, Such as? Uh, uh, doing uh, illegal narcotics. um uh, interesting moving violations in his car, okay. you know, things like that. And also during this time when he turned 18, graduated from high school, he uh, went to the University of Colorado Boulder for, and uh, was in their neuroscience program. And wow, so awesome. an interesting part of this whole thing is he spent a lot of this time really studying himself and kind of his use of, of narcotics um, have been really self-treatment. That's another thing we've learned about this, where I tend to refer to things as behavioral health, which is really a combination of mental health and substance use disorder. Right. Because you see those co-occurring conditions over and over again. So you could say that, you know, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Well, maybe all this happened because of the marijuana. Well, on the other hand, 
maybe the marijuana was a way where he was treating himself for things he didn't understand, but he felt better when he was mellowing out. Yeah. You see that obviously a lot with alcohol, but also when he's feeling depressed, he was using things like cocaine and whatnot to get himself back up again. Right. You know, and, and, and self-treatment like that is, you know, so is it a substance use disorder? Or is it really uh, self-medicating for a mental health disorder? Right. Or a little bit of both. I mean, that's, you know, to this day, we still haven't figured that out. Yeah. And so the, the diagnosis essentially stands as bipolar disorder. And have they said bipolar one versus bipolar two? Yeah. You know, I don't know that. Uh, it, it, like I said, they, that his psychiatrist has said, we're going to go with that, Yeah, you know, right. but it's not classic either way, you uh-huh. know? And so here we are and that's, you know, and you just, all right, whatever. And all we right. deal with it and, and he's, uh, he's on a different set of, after he had his last psychotic break last, uh, late last summer. And was hospitalized for that. And we've been changing up medication on that. And, and you know, we're in the phase right now where things are great. Couldn't be better. Yeah. But it's kind of the, you know, it's, it's that feeling you get where it's kind of the eye in the, in the hurricane. Right. Where, you know, the, the winds are coming from the other direction at some point. Yeah. And, uh, and how do you prepare for that again? Right. But, uh, you know, in, in that experience, um, you know, one of the things about three years after that initial episode, I started working, uh, through our foundation, really starting to give it uh, a mission. And part of that mission was behavioral health. And, uh, we, we worked with Alina, um, cause in my experience was being in the ER, there were no mental health uh, uh, professionals there and right. really no resource for that ER doctor. Yep. So we helped Alina create effectively a call center within Alina. So anybody in any of their hospitals or clinics can call one number and get immediate access to mental health professionals. Oh, that's awesome. And so, yeah, we did that, you know, it was about seven years ago or so. Uh, we fantastic. helped fund that. So that was the first step. Yeah. What? Um, so are all of his episodes, they involve these delusions too, paranoid delusions? Uh, a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, 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 uh, um, and it, it's interesting because it, it tends to just like suddenly appear, you know? Yeah. I was just going to ask, you don't see it coming on at all then. It's just there. Not much. No, it just, you know, I would say within days, Uh you know, it just, something kind of snaps um, one example was when he was out in Colorado, my, uh, my parents, uh, live out there and he was at their house and, uh, uh, as he was, you know, for a couple of years ahead of that, but just all of a sudden, um, was staring out at people walking in front of their house by the lake. He was covered up in like multiple sweaters and everything right. and talking to my mom, his grandma about the people out in the trail were watching him. You know, right, right. And she started talking to him and it's like, okay, this is not right. And wound up, uh, uh, they wound up taking him to the hospital and, uh, um, he uh, had to go into treatment. You know, at that point it was clear to the, uh, the doctors there. Yeah. Yeah. This and, is, this is not right. So does he typically go willingly if, if he's in an episode, two questions, does he go willingly if somebody says we need to get you to a hospital and two, do you think he's aware that he's in the midst of a mania? Uh, well, he, 
it, 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 oh boy, it's hard to explain. He he will respect authority to go to the hospital. Like this last psychotic break, I had to bring the sheriff in um, because he was uh, physically threatening. And uh, um, but once the sheriff showed up, he's like, "All right, yeah, I'll get in the ambulance. Let's right. go." Um, and everything was fine, but that's, it's another weird part of this where it it kind of, when he's going through this, I think, you know, as near as I can tell, it's just, there's something, there's like two things going on at the same time. One is he realizes he's in trouble and every one of these breaks has happened when he's either been around me or like around his grandmother. It's kind of like he went to our house or their house because he knew something was going on and needed a safe space. Yeah. But then, you know, but when he gets to the hospital and he realizes, uh Oh, I'm going to be, you know, locked up again, then all hell breaks loose. Okay. And, uh, like this last time he went to the ER, uh, like the doctor said, they shot him with, uh, uh, you know, more tranquilizer than, than they've ever shot anybody else with. And he said that would have dropped an elephant and he was still going. Wow. They had four security guards on him. He was throwing them around, you oh know? My so, goodness. You know, and, it, 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 and that's the tough thing about it is it can turn on and off when he's in that state. Yeah. Um, that's got to be so scary so as a parent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, and my point is, I, you know, I'll go as far as I can with them just to the point where, you know, I don't want him to hurt himself or anybody else. Right. You know, and that's that's when you got to bring in. Uh, a sheriff. You know, you got to bring it. Well, yeah. Or really what it is, is people will that can uh, get him back on the meds because yeah. what we have found is when he gets that pretty heavy treatment of uh, his antipsychotics, usually within about three days, things level back out again. And then you're, you're fine. You're into the next cycle. Okay. And what I want to do is, is get to the point where we can have an agreement where, you know, a lot of times he doesn't trust me. I get that, but it's kind of like if, if we could have a panel of like me and a couple of his friends, and if all three of us agree that this is a problem, he would agree that he's going to take this heavy dose of the antipsychotics and we're going to ride it out for three days, you know, right. let's just do it on our own. Let's not bring in the officials. Right. Um, right. That's kind of my goal because, you know, unfortunately you hope that that situation is never going to happen again. And our hope continues to be that as he uh, matures and gets older, you know, a lot of times with these kind of things, it kind of wears off, yeah. you know, it tends to affect uh, adolescence a lot more than, um, adults, right, you know, our hope right. is it starts to lessen and wear off, but you always have to be prepared for, for what might happen. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you get concerned when you have to call in police and have you thought about making a call to somebody else like the mental health crisis line? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've learned about that. Um, interestingly though, there's kind of the work that I do, I refer to as a three-legged stool. My day job with Infinite Campus is working on transforming K-12 education. And then through our foundation, we work with behavioral health. But the other third leg is law enforcement. Okay. You know, the largest uh, behavioral health provider in the state of Minnesota is, is law enforcement. And, uh, you know, through the jails and prisons and other things. And I have a unique relationship with the county sheriff here with, with uh, Noka County. We live up in Ham Lake. And I know most of those guys, (laughs) they are, you know, and there's a lot of things that go wrong with mental health and law enforcement. I will tell you, I have an amazing amount of respect for the Anoka County Sheriff when it comes to behavioral health. Yeah. 
when when those officers come in, the way they manage the situation, I have to, they are better than some of the doctors I've dealt with. Right. I mean, they are they are awesome at de-escalation, at everything, um, and, and just striking up a conversation with them and everything. And it's just like, you know, and, and I, I've 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 told them and the sheriff, I said, this is a model. I don't know how you could do this any better. So we've had a good experience. Yeah. Now that being said, I think if I was living in Minneapolis or St. Paul. It may be a different situation. And that's, you know, part of what I've been trying to do through our foundation and whatnot is how do we address, you know, things that I understand both, you know, how law enforcement works, but, you know, kind of getting back, you mentioned the, um, uh, the, the network uh, mental health and addiction network prize that we put out there. This is a huge problem, but the things that I've learned over the last decade in working in this is, you know, behavioral health, is a lot like physical health, that our system is really good at treatment. That if you if you break your leg or have a heart attack or wherever you go to the hospital, it's pretty good at dealing with that. And I have to say to a great extent, if you're suicidal or things like that, there's actually a pretty good system for dealing with that. The problem with both physical health and behavioral health is it's really bad. Our system is really bad at prevention and recovery. Right. So you have a heart attack, yeah, they'll get you in the ambulance, they'll get you to the hospital, they'll stabilize you. But the reality is you probably need to exercise and eat better. Right. But that's not their problem, you know. Um, They fix you up, stabilize you, and get you the hell out the door. Exactly. And, and, And behavioral health is even more that way, where when you get to the point where you're suicidal or you have a psychotic break, a lot of things have gone wrong leading up to that. Yeah. And the real work is not the stabilization. The real work is the recovery afterwards, which can take three to nine years. Right. And we just don't have a system that can do that. And the large institutions that are out there, the hospitals and whatnot, are really designed to provide treatment, but not prevention and recovery. Yeah. And and so the work in seeing that, what we've really kind of moved our foundation to do is say, okay, it's easy to find a hospital, but how do you find the smaller providers that are, you know, uh, uh, providing that uh, prevention, recovery, all those services. And the nice thing that we've seen over the last 10 years is the number of these small providers are growing dramatically. It's, it's a very positive trend that's happening out there. Yet the problem we had 10 years ago is even, I think, worse today, which is how does somebody in need of service, of behavioral health services, find the best suited provider? Yeah, That's still a problem. And usually it's, well, I know somebody or, you know, I Googled it or whatever. It's very inefficient. Yeah. And this is where my world comes in being a technology entrepreneur is tech platforms have solved this problem in other industries. You know, Uber connects people who needs a ride with people who have cars. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the most uh, applicable model is, is Etsy where I don't know if you're familiar with Etsy, but you've got people who kind of have hobbies and crafts you know, say you do macrame bird feeders um, and you want to sell these things. Well, you can't open up a storefront or sell them at uh, Walmart. Right. You can go on Etsy and people all over the world can connect with you and find this thing that you're really good at. Yeah. So yeah. our thought is, why can't we do the same thing for behavioral health? Yeah. And you that know, was the design of our network prize. Yeah. So, you know, before we jump more into this network prize. So, you know, I had the exact same situation. You know, I was became suicidal in 2013. I checked myself into, actually, I 
had to bring my wife and sister with me to an emergency psychiatric appointment to talk the doctor into saying, yes, you should take time off of work. He was so wishy-washy. I was so glad they were there. And um, and then it was like, okay, we've got a doctor's note, and what do we do next? And like you said, it was essentially hit Google, you know, and try to yeah. figure out where I can go now that I'm suicidal and in dire need and taking work off. And I hadn't a clue. The psychiatric PA hadn't helped, really. I think he might have given yeah. us a brochure or something. And And then it was calls and checking availability, and again... I was suicidal. I couldn't even do that. And like you said, you you all had the wherewithal and the means, and I did too, right? I could tap into my wife and sister, and my sister came over and started making these calls because I couldn't make them. No, exactly. Um, I could barely function. So you saw how complicated this system is, right? And you decided to put together this competition through your foundation, and what kind of you rolled it out. It sounded like in October or November of twenty one. Yeah, it was. Uh, That's I think when it was you like the beginning of October. We did that. Yeah, we did a we did a launch here at our offices. Um, that was good, and we wanted to get a lot of press on it. So yeah. um, I do a lot of political work, and uh, we invited uh, Governor Walls to come out. He was gracious right. enough to uh, to show up. And you know, the governor he's a former teacher, former yeah. military. Yeah. He understands behavioral health quite a bit. You know, especially being a veteran. Uh, you talk about suicide. Uh, veterans have one of the highest suicide rates in the in the you yeah. know in the country. Oh, it's horrible, yeah. And um, and so uh, he was gracious enough to come out, and we had uh, you know TV stations, new, newspapers, and whatnot yeah. here for that. Yeah. And really, the idea was we just laid out basically this problem and saying how do how does how does somebody in need find you know a provider. Really, we we when we talked about from the network standpoint is what's kind of the single place you can go to, not for treatment, but or not services, but just a place that has information. Right. And we tried to keep it as open as possible so folks could be creative in their their submissions. And so all I said was, I just want a resource, whether it's electronic, physical, or whatever, some place, some resource people can go to to find more information about what's available send proposals in. So the next uh, three months, we uh, uh, received proposals. And then um, how many proposals uh, would you say you got? Oh, uh, we probably had, I don't know, three dozen or so. Okay. Um, and I would say a lot of them, maybe half of them were uh, not relevant. Right. By that, I mean, it, it basically people didn't I don't even think they understood what we were looking for. And they said, hey, we've got a great program where people come and ride horses and they get better. Give right. us money. Right. And we're like, right. that's really cool. But <laughs> that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Right. And then we had, I would say, uh, a dozen that were uh, pretty, pretty good, pretty competitive. Yeah. And we we evaluated those and we invited uh I think about a half dozen of, of those uh, groups in uh, to our office to basically do a, a presentation to our, uh, our 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 panel, you know, which is made up of our foundation uh, uh, directors, and that was interesting. That we kind of before that we kind of thought we knew who was going to win, you uh -huh. know. Yeah. And uh, we were um, we were wrong, you know, when you started digging into. Uh, some of those presentations, you know, for example, I thought like the University of Minnesota was going to win it hands down. 
on paper, it looked fantastic. Right. And I thought, perfect. This is everything we need. My experience there, whatnot. Um, they, the person who came in and did that presentation, I would sum up the presentation of saying, hi, I'm here from the university of Minnesota. Um, where's the check? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Probably like, not the well, best presentation. You know, and, and they wanted to do something different. And yeah. I said, well, what about, you know, you wrote up here? Yeah, we could probably do that too. And it was just, it was really weird. Yeah. And, and then a couple of the organizations, um, I would say the outcome of those presentations was there was no ideal fit and it really took some thinking, but we came out of that, um, in, in, in my business, uh, working in K-12, we also work with a lot of big philanthropic organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation and uh, the Schmidt futures foundation and others. And one of the things I've learned in working with them is they don't, you know, we, we do a lot of work with universities on the data science things I was talking about with student research and whatnot. But watching these these mature philanthropic organizations, they, they don't just write checks and say, good luck, I hope it works out. Right, right. They have professionals that come in and they work with you and, and they provide other resources. And what it reminded me of in the tech world was venture capital. I'm going to give you money, but I'm also going to help you spend this money and make sure that this thing succeeds. Right. And so right. we've taken that approach with this network prize. And so what we did was we picked uh, two, I don't know if I call them winners, but kind of two organizations that we thought could make this work. And what's interesting about it is one organization was a, a it, it's two people. They've got day jobs and all that. They're doctors but they started up this um, online directory of mental health resources. And they kind of really understand that. Right. But it's not fully the platform we're looking for, but we thought, hmm, they can build on that. But they really don't have an organization. It's kind of like a, you know, a hobby for these folks. Right, right. But then the second organization is they have offices all over the state. They have mental health professionals. And this is what I think is important, where – um, kind of to your point, you know, with the situation you went through, um, that if you've got like a website or an app or something like Etsy or one of those, you can go through and find things. Everything's good and whatnot. But when you're somebody who's in crisis, you can't do all that. You yeah. need a person. Yeah. So what we saw is how can we kind of merge these two organizations where on one, you've got the tech experience and with the other, you've got the people side of it. So you could go to the website. But, you know, like a lot of websites you go to, there's always the option to chat with somebody. Right. right. Or you can escalate to open a window. And that person may say, um, dial 911. <laughs> this right. is an emergency. Right. Or walk you through, you know, what your options are and those kind of things. So merging those two functions together is what we arrived at. And so what we've been working on them with the last couple of months is really putting together a business plan. Okay. Because this you know, it, it's going to require a lot of work. It's not just like dump the money in and it magically occurs. There's a lot of tech work. There's a lot of things like just the providers out there. How do you get them on board? How do you get them to participate? What's the motivation for them to update the data on their sites and, and do all that and, and just finding who those are. So what we've done is um, we've kind of divided this project into three main phases to, to you know, to, to make this work. And the first phase is we're working with um, the, the kind of people side of this first, which is the uh, Minnesota Prevention and Recovery Alliance. Okay. So they're, they're the group that has these counselors and others all around the state. And so phase one is working with them to design a pilot here in Anoka County. 
So the first thing they're working on is just identify all the providers that anybody in the county would want to tap into. Now, the providers don't necessarily have to be Anoka County providers. You know, it could be the University of Minnesota or Mayo Clinic or something. But really focusing on who are all the smaller counselors, other organizations up here that somebody would want to find. Right. And then and this goes to my computer side of things. We got to start modeling this world. So we have these entities identified. What are the attributes of each of these entities? What are the things, you know, if you were to describe these providers, is it the services they provide? Is it their location? Is it available beds or, or open slots? We're going through and designing all that. And then if we have a design, then we're going to start looking at if somebody were to come in to your, you know, to their office and say, yeah, I don't feel right. What's the first question they would ask? And then based on that answer, what's the next question? And really from that, we build out a decision tree. You know, how do you get that patient in the fewest number or that, that person in need in the fewest number of questions from I don't feel right to here's where you should go. Right. We can design all that on paper. And then if it looks like this is actually going to work, we go to phase two. And that's working with a second organization, which we've kind of yet to name, but they're sitting there yeah. um, to develop the tech. So we would, we're not going to dump like a million dollars on the front end into uh, MNPR. But what we're going to do is say, look, at for the first set of deliverables to, to build this thing out, let's just say it's going to be 50 hours at $100 an hour. We're going to write you a check for 50 grand to get that done. And then um, we get to that end, we then make a determination, okay, now we need to build out the tech platform. That's going to cost a quarter million. So we do the next, you know, uh, issues to that second organization. And then we run the pilot here in the, uh, in the county and we pay operating expenses on that. Um, and our hope is over a year we have this thing rolled out. And then if that all is successful, we would move, move to phase three, which is scale it up across the entire state. Wow. And this kind of goes back to um, my political work where, like when we had the governor here, I talked about this process and I said, you know, the state of Minnesota, this is a very risky thing that we're doing, trying to figure out how this is going to work and whatnot. The state should not be spending taxpayer money on that risky endeavor. Right. But my foundation will do that. And if we can prove in our pilot this is successful, the state should then pay to scale it across the entire state. Of course, the governor agreed with that. We'll see if he, you know, if A, he's still in office next year and B, you know, um, um, if they Stands do that. But it. we've been, yeah, but that being said, we've been working with uh, great legislators across the state. You've seen probably a lot of uh, behavioral health uh, bills that did get passed in the last session. And uh, we've been working very hard with, with both Republicans and Democrats on that across the state because behavioral health is something everybody can agree on. And uh, um, I'm really a centrist when it comes to politics. It's like, you know, I don't like the far left. I don't like the far right. I'm in the middle just saying, let's get stuff done. Right. Let's just right. figure out what needs to happen. How do we make it happen? I love public-private partnerships, you know, like we do with K-12. Um, I do the same thing in behavioral health. And we know this isn't going to be solved overnight. We know that what we're doing is just a, a small piece to this much larger puzzle. But I think it's a piece we understand, and it's an important piece, that if we can make the system more accessible, and you know, I talked about like personalizing learning for kids, if we can have a system out there that can personalize a lot of behavioral health services, um, I think that's a good thing. Now, yeah. it's not going to solve everything, 
There's a lot of other stuff going on. Like at Mayo, we were, uh, I was talking to doctors down there. They're doing fantastic. You know, I talked about like drugs affect everybody differently. Right. The Mayo's got a program. You should do a podcast on this. Um, they're building mini brains. Wow. They're, they're taking like uh, nerve tissue and stuff and building brains that they can take different drugs, try it out in that brain and see what works and what doesn't. And they can build like thousands of these brains. And then their idea is, you can then take a, a, a patient, somebody who has you know some sort of disorder, take a sample of their nerve tissue, figure out which mini brain is that like it's that it's like, right? And then now you, now you get your prescription. Wow, it's like mind blowing, yeah. you know? Yeah. So there's good things happening all over. We're, our little pieces. How can we create a marketplace that uh, allows people in need of behavioral health services to find the provider that's best suited to them? Full stop. That's all we're trying to do here. Right, right. And so you are working with two organizations. You you mentioned that you're not naming one of them yet. Do you know when you'll name them? Well, uh, we're interesting about that. That is the organization where they don't have any full-time employees or anything like that. Okay, right. And what we're kind of pushing them on is for them to participate in this. Either one or both of those people have to quit their day job. Or they're going to have to kind of hire somebody to, to, right. to, to manage the tech side of things. And we don't have a commitment on that yet. And so that's, uh, interestingly, that's the kind of thing where, um, I, you know, again, I kind of go back to this like venture capital, where if you went to a venture capitalist and said, I've got a great idea for a company, um, but I don't want to work for that company. Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned so, they're, that yeah. they're both doctors, right? Yeah. So, They've got good day jobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so you were hoping one of them would quit their day job of being a doctor and take this risk. and Right. And so the way I see it, I think realistically, and it's not no knock against them, but I think realistically our hope is over the next uh, month or two as we do this first phase and we kind of design this thing out, that they're going to see the promise on this. And then uh, we can fund, you know, uh, you know, at least a couple years of that person's salary, right, you know, managing right. that side of things. Um, yeah. We're, you know, but we, that's not a decision that has to be made yet. Right. Right. And so when you talked about scaling it up, doing first uh, within one county and then hopefully the state, when do you see it being completed for the county level? And then when do you see it moving on to the state level? Well, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, our, you know, our goal, you know, and, and it's, there's so many things between here and there, but my goal is to have a functional prototype of what we want to do by, uh, um, I would love to have it by October, which would be one year from our announcement. I think the reality is if we have something put together that can start to be used on a county basis here by the end of this calendar year. Okay. Um, by the end of 2022. So start use for 2023. Right. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, that is kind of the goal that I'm working with. It could go faster than that. could go slower. Right. Um, I think that the biggest challenge, the, the technical challenge isn't, you know, I run a tech company. I understand the technology. That's not the challenge here. The challenge is getting the providers, the, Everything from the hospitals, you know, the Alina hospitals we have in the county, Mercy and Unity, uh, getting the um, 
uh, the, the Nystroms of the world who provide a lot of counseling services, get them on board and also getting, you know, there's a lot of like uh, uh, peer groups that meet in churches, getting yeah. them on board. Right. It's that end of it is getting the content put together. Yeah. That's the challenge. It, it and there's going to be a lot of pushback. Why would there be pushback? Um, you know, it's for, for these folks, it's also a business that if they have a nice little business going, why would I participate in a marketplace where ultimately my customers are going to be taken away? Um, because you, you because see, their choices are expanded. Yeah, I know. It's the thing that I explain all the time that right now there's more demand than there is supply. Yeah. Which brings you to another interesting thing that we found in researching this is in these other directories uh, systems that the providers, what they want to do is pick and choose the uh, those in need, the patients. And what they would like to do is be able to pick, you know, in some cases, the most profitable patients. Right. And right. so what they want is information about that person and be able to screen out those that wow. um, aren't going to be profitable. Yeah. And, and it, it's like, I get that, you know, they've got to run a business. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, and we deal with similar things in K-12, you know, yeah, uh, you talk that... about starting a charter school, charter school is a business. And I guess what a public school like St. Paul public schools, that's a business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is a, a challenging issue, right? Like, I mean, I know you talked about just like you had the means and so forth to get help for your son. And you really you named it yourself, right? The the single parent who's working two jobs and all of a sudden their kid has a psychotic break. How are we helping them? So I would imagine there's a lot of forces pushing against you when you hear somebody talking about, well, what's the profitability for me? Right. And, and there are there again on the political side of things, we're working through that. For example, what you know, a potential path is when we scale this up statewide, um, if uh, payments, the Medicaid payments and so on would flow through a system like this. Yeah. The idea being you have to participate in this online marketplace to be eligible for those um, insurance and Medicaid payments right. that would guarantee their cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sounds fantastic. Incredible work well, you're like doing. A lot of moving pieces. And as I always say, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Exactly. And so there would be an answer already. So, and we're fully prepared. I mean, we, we know, and I've been an entrepreneur for, for many, many years that um, generally your first go is a failure. Right. And right. you need, you know, you need to have that conviction that we're going to, we're going to recover from the problems, the failures. We're going to learn from those mistakes we're going to continue to push forward. And that's another reason why, you know, as opposed to saying we're going to do 20 grand here, you know, I said, how much is going to guarantee or not really guarantee, but, but give us a greater possibility of success. And I said, you know, a million dollars should do it for something like this. And I've got access to more money if we need to, but you know, in telling these partners we're working through, you know, we're committed to see this through to the end. Right. And, the partners that we're working with, we want their commitment as well, yeah. because I know, you know, having founded several startups that um, tough times are ahead, you know, there will be oh, yeah. a lot of difficult things that we're going to have to work through. And yep. you need, you need that commitment from your partners. And right. um, um, I think, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're doing well. I, I would have hoped to be where we are today, maybe three months ago. 
Um, but on the other hand, we want to make sure we're doing it right. We don't want to just start spending money for the sake of spending money. We do want to get a return on that investment. Yeah. Now, the return is not financial for us. The return is the social good. Right. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons I was surprised when you said you maybe get some pushback was in my mind, I see it as additional marketing for some of these small community health, mental health providers, right? If their name is listed on this hub, then it's, it's just more access for people to, to find right. their organization. And, you know, in these, 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 you know, doctors, counselors, people are out there, they don't have marketing teams. They right. don't have, you know, the ability to do search engine optimization. So yep. they, you know, come up on the Google prompt. And that's kind of the idea. I go back to like Etsy. That's what, you know, a platform like that's all about. And right. that's kind of the idea behind this, where it's truly a marketplace where everyone wins. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Awesome stuff that you're doing. And, uh, and I really appreciate you kind of sharing how you got there, right? Through this, your own experience, your personal experience and that of your son. And, uh, and so I really appreciate you sharing that and the work you're doing and the, the foundation. It's, it's just incredible. So, I yeah, to... you know, it, it, it is. And, and also, um, you know, I appreciate things like, you know, you're doing with these podcasts and also sharing like your situation with, uh, uh, you know, depression and, and you, you, you explain kind of, the, you know, the things that you've gone through. And that's another part of this, which, you know, 10 years ago when we started our journey on this, nobody was talking about mental health. Right. Right. Nobody. And I've made a point where don't shy away from it, lean into it. And it is amazing as I talked about this and I talk about it, you know, in our company meetings, you know, when I have uh, folks from Alina here, I have the governor here, we talk about it. It's, you would be amazed how many employees will come up to me and say, you know, my son's got the same thing or my daughter fill in the blank or I personally, you know, keep up that work or simple things like people in our neighborhood. You know, it is incredible. Yeah, and you look at the stats, uh, half of people in the country are going to have some sort of behavioral health issue sometime in their life. At any point in time, 25% of people in the country have a diagnosable condition. Yeah. You know, so like I say, if you're in a room with, you know, four people, which one of you, you know, has a diagnosable condition? Because odds are one of you has got it. Yeah. That's how prevalent it is. And when you start talking about it, you begin to realize, yeah, this is a thing. And then coming out of the pandemic with, um, you know, social emotional learning issues like you're no doubt seeing in St. Paul and, you know, all of all of the things related. It's this is a ticking time bomb. And then you go on the substance use side of it. You know, we've had issues with um, opioids forever. Yeah. The thing coming now is is fentanyl. That's the right. thing that's going to, you know, it's going to dwarf what's happened with covid out in San Francisco. They don't even talk about covid. It's all fentanyl. Right. And. And what you're seeing is it's not necessarily people who are taking fentanyl. What's happening is like street marijuana, they're putting fentanyl in it. Yeah. So if you're buying just like like weed on the street, there might be fentanyl in that. And you might be hooked on opioids without even knowing it. Right. That's the scary part of it. That is really scary. Yeah. So we need a system. We we got it. We got to get on this right now. And we've been we've been sounding the alarm at the Capitol. And there are a handful of legislators that really get this. We've got to make it campaign issues. We've got to make it a priority for government. And then we've got to have these solutions that are ready to go. You know, when 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 the state is ready to start writing checks, 
you know, we need stuff for him to spend it on. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Good. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. Hey, the last uh, question yeah. I want to ask you that I ask all of my guests is if, uh, if somebody out there is listening to this show and struggling right now with depression or maybe even somebody in a similar situation like you were in a parent who notices some strange behaviors going on with their kids, what, uh, what's a piece of advice that you would give them? Well, I think that um, what I, the number one thing I'd say is you need a, a support network that right. if the idea is, you know, I'm going to take care of this myself, you might be able to do that with physical health issues. But the thing that I've learned when it comes to mental health, you're not in a position where you can make good decisions on your own. You need to have people you can trust. And if you don't trust people, uh, you're screwed. Yeah. You know, whether right. it's, whether it's parents, whether it's a spouse, like you're talking to other family members, yep. you've got to be in a situation where you can trust them. And if you don't have that family structure, you've got to find friends, you've got to find professionals. Yeah. Um, cause without that support network, um, Forget it. Yeah, I you think know, you're, you're absolutely right. And I always tell people if you reach out to somebody and you don't get a positive response, reach out to somebody else because it yep. is so important to connect and, and have that support. And that's system. what goes to, you know, in that when we talk about this, uh, this platform that we're talking about, that's another resource. Absolutely. That I'm all alone. I have these issues. Who can help me? And it may be, and there's a lot, like I say, these community organizations, you know, it's a lot like my stepfather was. Um, an alcoholic and, uh, um, he, uh, he, he overate and drank. And, and, uh, when I was 10, he married my mom. And at that point he quit smoking and drinking. Um, at the same time, he said dieting is a little more difficult cause that's just moderation. Right. And I asked him, well, what was the light bulb that went off? You know, how did you, how did you do it? And he said, well, it was easy before he thought that smoking and drinking was his problem. What he realized was th that was his answer. His problem was his ex-wife. Right, <laughs> right. Once he got rid of her and married my mom, he's like, problem solved. I can, <laughs> I can, I can stop smoking and drinking. I said, huh, that you know, funny. so it is that. And so that's the kind of thing where, you know, if you can reach out and you can find a big thing for him was Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Uh, like I said, he was a principal, a number of other teachers and principals that he worked with. They all went into AA at the same time. Okay. And, and that network of friends, every one of them stayed in the program and stayed sober wow. forever. Yeah. And he said, I'd never be able to do it without having, you know, all of my friends in the program. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I'm a huge yeah. believer in support groups. Yeah. So that's, that's my, my single piece of advice is you, you've got to have that. And without that, you're on your own and, and, and good luck with that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for your work around mental health right on. and, and for it. the kids with infinite campus. And, uh, thank you also for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I, I uh, anytime. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. Will do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. 
or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. 